Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England. The Rota Fortuna, or the Wheel of Fortune, was a favourite motif in ancient and particularly medieval literature. And I think you can guess why. Death was just around the corner for most people. Without modern science, so much of what happened in the natural world must have looked just like magic. I'm sure many of you will know this bit of music from Karlov's Carmina Burena, modern music set to a medieval poem that talks about fate monstrous and empty. The goddess Fortuna was depicted with her wheel as blind or blindfolded, with her wheel split into four parts, showing the progress of man from having nothing but expectations to having nothing but memories. Well, our Simon de Montfort is going to experience the full turn of said wheel over the next couple of years. We left him in May 1264 with the civil war going badly. The king had already won notable victories in de Montfort's heartland in the Midlands and captured one of de Montfort's sons and moved south of London to capture the all-important southeast gateway to France. 
He was now near battle in Sussex, the site of William the Conqueror's victory 200 years before. De Montfort left London with his much smaller force, a force that had one-third the amount of cavalry. And Henry heard about this and headed towards a town called Lewis on the South Sussex coast, where the magnate John of Warren had his castle and priory. De Montfort reached his own manor eight miles north of Lewis on the 12th of May 1264 and made one last effort to negotiate. He was well aware of the disadvantage of his position. His final offer was around the observance of the provisions of Oxford, but offering to submit their terms to arbitration and also offering a cash incentive, £30,000, to cover any damage that de Montford may have caused. Now it appears that Henry was minded to accept, but Richard of Cornwall and Edward told him not to be such a weak-minded idiot. And so, on the 13th of May, we get the formalities of feudal rebellion, the withdrawal of homage by de Montford, the declaration of defiance. That night, de Montford apparently knighted Gilbert de Clare with sword and sword belt. For the next bit, by the way, there's an excellent map on the website, produced by David Carpenter, no less, and a link to the Sussex Archaeological Society website, where you can find out even more if you're interested. The following day, de Montford marched south to Lewis. We've not had a battle for a while, have we? Certainly not one that we know a lot about, so please indulge me. De Montford had with him a carriage, and he set it on top of a hill with the standard. In the carriage were some Londoners who were not keen on the baronial cause. De Montford maybe put them there as a warning to others. But once he'd established his standard, he ordered his army to sew white crosses on their surcoats, both so that they knew who each other were, but also to show the justice of their cause so most of the army settled down to a bit of morning needlework, as you do. That morning, the baronial army made sure that the royal army knew just where they were, by the simple expedient of slaughtering the royal foragers as they set off to look for food. The royal army came out of the town going north, and we're on. There appears to be no thought now about avoiding a fight. As they emerged, they'd have seen the downs ahead of them and at the top of a hill the baronial army waiting for them. We don't really know the exact size of the army at Lewis and the chroniclers give us very wide range of options from the possible to the frankly ludicrous. The probability is that there were only about 15,000 fighting men involved with 10,000 on the Royalist side and 5,000 on de Montford's side. De Montford had the advantage though of initiative and height. His forces were in four battles, left, centre and right but with the 4th division being held in reserve. It's said that the Royal Army was split into the traditional three battles, with Edward commanding the right, along with the Lusignan William de Valence. The King had the centre, and Richard of Cornwall the left. But the reality looks a little bit more disorganised than this suggests. Essentially, Edward commanded the 3,000 cavalry which was outside the town, and therefore closer. Ahead of him up the hill were the Londoners. Now... As we know, the Londoners had already broken the code. They'd pelted Edward's mother, the Queen, with crud. This was not forgivable to the monarchical mind. How dare they forget their station? Edward is still an impetuous young man, and he let his men off the leash. Fair dues, the Londoners were routed. In short order, they fled the field, pursued by Edward and his cavalry. They came to de Montford's standard, and although de Montford wasn't there, since he was with his battle... 
they managed to kill the four Londoners in the carriage, despite the fact that they were desperately telling them that they were on the royalist side. It did them no good whatsoever. Joyously, the cavalry pursued, tails up, killing and slaughtering running men as they went. OK, so all sounds very good for the royalists. But the rest of the army, the infantry, had been left behind. Henry and Richard decided that they must attack as quickly as possible to take advantage and stay connected with Edward if they can. And anyway, presumably we're now talking 7,000 plays 4,000, so still pretty good odds. So they slogged up the hill towards de Montford. Once they reached the top, pretty knackered I would imagine, battle was joined and Cornwall's division began to give ground. De Montford committed his reserve at this point and both royal divisions began to fall back. And now the hill played against the royalists always up. Now as they moved down the hill the baronial army gained momentum and before you can say knife or Jack Robinson it's all gone horribly wrong. The baronial army targeted Henry. Meanwhile a group of magnates, John of Warren, Hugh Bigard, William de Valence, Guy de Lusignan gathered together in a group of 300 men and seeing how fierce the baronial army was they bravely ran away. Before long, the battle had turned into a rout, with the Royalist army heading for safety wherever they could find it in the castle, priory and town. According to one chronicler, Henry was much beaten with swords and maces, which sounds deeply satisfying, before he took refuge in the priory. Richard of Cornwall, who styled himself the Perpetual Augustus and King of the Romans, hid in a windmill. He was seen, though, and surrounded with the baronial soldiers shouting, Come out, evil miller! And eventually the perpetual Augustus gave himself up and was taken away in chains, eventually to be ransomed for the fine sum of £17,000. In the triumph after the battle, the people of the baronial army made themselves a bit of a derisive song about Richard the Trichard, as they call him, i.e. Richard the Trickster. I have helpfully put this bit of doggerel about the perpetual Augustus on the website. As the fighting continued in the town, more magnates were captured, including, interestingly, Robert Bruce and a large contingent of Scottish soldiers. And then at some point, Edward arrived back with his exhausted cavalry. I would guess that he was somewhat hacked off at what he found. No doubt, after all the fun of the morning, he'd been expecting to come back to a party, but sadly not. The Royalists still held the castle, despite an assault by the baronial army, and this got Edward's pecker up once more, and he was all for fighting on. But resistance at this point was useless, with the Royalist army in pieces. But, on the other hand, it's worth noting that de Montfort didn't have all of the pieces either. Henry and Edward were inside a priory, with Edward and lots of marcher lords. The idea of attacking a priory wasn't an attractive one, and a long siege equally unattractive, with the potential for the Royalist army and faction to assemble. So de Montfort decided to negotiate, and during the night of the 14th and 15th of May, that's exactly what happened. The result is known as the Mise of Lewis, and although it doesn't survive in written format, we kind of know what was in it. First and foremost, the provisions were back. Traitors were to be removed from the King's Council, by which I guess we take to mean anyone who didn't agree with Simon de Montfort. And the barons were to be pardoned. But de Montfort had to pay a price. He had to agree to look at revising the provisions under French arbitration, and he had to free all the marcher lords, who were to subsequently prove a right pain in the proverbial backside. Now, it wasn't just the fact that Henry and Edward had the protection of a priory that forced de Montfort to make these concessions. He also needed legitimacy. 
His power rested even more obviously than before on force majeure. An agreement fixed up by the French would put his regime on a much firmer ground. The number of dead at the Battle of Lewis was supposed to be anywhere between 2,700 and 20,000, according to various chroniclers. But in fact, it's much more likely to have been lower, of the order maybe of 3,000. There are a couple of noble deaths recorded, but for the most part the battle was fought under the existing rules. Don't kill the nobles, get a ransom from them, but go right ahead and cut the throats of as many commoners as you like. After all, there's plenty more where that came from. It's worth noting that we keep saying that in medieval times commanders didn't like fighting battles because they were all far too risky. And Lewis is as good a proof as you're going to get of that. Before Lewis, de Montfort was firmly in the silver medal position with no bronze medal being awarded. With a far inferior army, to quote Representative James Seddon from Virginia, he snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. So now we are in a most extraordinary period of not just English, but European medieval history. We have a puppet king, a constitutional monarch. A good lord. I mean, good lord. I haven't been able to find out what the reaction was from most other crowned heads of Europe, but within England, the song of Lewis we mentioned a couple of episodes ago makes it quite clear that people knew quite how momentous this was. I have therefore posted the whole Song of Lewis on the website this week, and it's really a remarkably modern political tract. It gives a coherent and powerful argument to underpin the Baron's demands. And it also points out that without de Montfort himself, nothing would have been achieved. The faith and fidelity of Simon alone, said the song, is become the security of the peace of all England. So... De Montfort was now lord of all he surveyed. He had the king and his heir in his possession as hostages. The queen and the aliens so much of the fuss had been about, the Lusignan and the Savoyard, had mostly fled to France. Though having said that, Peter of Savoy's castle at Pevensey refused to submit and was still held for the king, and the royalist marcher lords had fled to their homes in the marches. So, game over, presumably. Well, of course, not a bit of it. De Montfort still had lots of problems. So here was the job list at the start of June 1264, or at least the one that de Montfort was willing for people to know about. Number one, establish a legitimate basis for the regime and make the provisions of Oxford work. Victory by battle alone isn't good enough. Two, establish law and order after the civil war. After all, maintaining the peace is basically the role of medieval government. And if I can't even do that, then I'm toast. Number three, do something about the Welsh marcher lords. They worry me. There was, however, another job de Montfort appears to have set himself. So, number four, secret. Make a shed load of money, feather my own nest, help my sons lord it over everyone else, and generally make it quite clear that I rule OK. We've noted a few times about this dual nature of de Montfort. On the one hand, the fervent reformer. On the other, the avaricious empire builder. Well, it's still there. First up, then, was the need to establish a legitimate regime. For this, Route was via the French king and the papal legate, because success that way would bring a double whammy. Acceptance from the hands of the leaders of Christendom, and also, of course, it was part of the conditions of the Mies of Louis. But Louis IX simply refused to play. He wouldn't answer any letters, or allow French arbitration of the Mies of Louis to go ahead. And meanwhile, keeping the peace was proving no easier. 
you might cast your mind back to the anarchy or the 1215 to 17 Civil War. All over the country, adherence to the provisions of Oxford were no doubt genuine, but they were also often an opportunity for a bit of local power struggling. The treasury was empty, the sheriff's receipts basically zip. The chroniclers wrote that plunderings and burnings were common, neighbour attacked neighbour and the strong oppressed the weak. De Montfort appointed keepers of the peace at the start of June, but with limited success. Many of those keepers were then accused themselves of violence. De Montfort's failure to carry out the fundamental duty of the medieval ruler struck at the very heart of his legitimacy and support. And by this time it was already clear that the Queen, Eleanor, was not going to take the defeat at Lewis lying down, and that she had at least moral support from Louis and some financial support to boot. So she was out there putting together a coalition of outraged exiles and foreign royals. She had some cash from Louis, material help from his brother Alphonse of Poitiers. She was gathering mercenaries from all over and, of course, had the likes of Peter of Savoy, William of Valence, Hugh Bigard and other English magnates. So it was against this background of rising worry that de Montfort turned to his other route to legitimacy, Parliament and the people. Before the end of June 1264, he'd called a new Parliament and out of that came the Ordinance. The Ordinance basically instituted a baronial council of nine, three of whom would always be working with the king at any one time, and this council would have the right of veto to any royal appointments. The Ordinance basically implemented the provisions of Oxford, though even more emphatically, negating the power of the king. It was instituted in the name of the king and the community of the realm, and the preamble does its very best to make it clear that the king is really, really happy. It's done with his will. Yup, he loves it. How likely do we think this is on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being very likely and 1 being not likely at all? Well, somewhere down in the minus 1.1s. There are plenty of suggestions that Henry resisted as hard as he could, but he was essentially threatened with the removal of Edward as his heir, and in the end he caved. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But while the king may have hated it, the knights of the Shire in general seemed to have loved it. They were there again at the Parliament, and the evidence is that despite all the weight of history, on balance, the majority of England was loyal to de Montfort's government right down to the end. The support of the church is also quite remarkably solid throughout, 
And as we'll see in a minute, the bishops came under intense pressure, the poor little poppets. London remained staunch in its support. There is a famous occasion after Lewis when the mayor of London was required to renew his fealty to the king. Rather than the expected words of abject submission, Thomas Fitzthomas, the mayor, said, Lord, as long as you will be a good king to us, we'll be your faithful and devoted men. Which sounds reasonable enough to the modern ear, but it's completely unprecedented to the medieval one. You just don't express reservations to the medieval king. Henry, without doubt, would have been seething. But unfortunately, de Montfort's government had rather narrow support from the people who still really mattered, the magnates. Gilbert de Clare, the Red Clare, was really the main one outside of de Montfort's own affinity and close supporters. So everyone who's rooting for de Montfort, you'd better hope he's going to look after Gilbert. After the Parliament, whatever happened in negotiation with Louis, de Montfort had a basis for legitimacy, the community of the realm. And whatever mistakes de Montfort makes, his adherence to the provisions of Oxford and Westminster was never in doubt. After the Parliament, new sheriffs are appointed as defined by the provisions, local men, given a salary rather than expected to farm their taxes to make a profit. But now we have a military crisis. It comes from two angles. Firstly, across the Channel, Eleanor's army is gathering. De Montfort did not do English understatement. The writ he issued to summon a feudal army talks about a horde of aliens thirsting for English blood. Every village had to provide men according to their size. No one was allowed to get off because of the harvest. And the results were dramatic. Between the 6th and 9th of July, one of the largest feudal hosts was called to camp on the downs opposite France. As one chronicler put it, such a multitude gathered together against the aliens that you would not have believed that so many men equipped for war existed in England. At this point, most of the country was united behind a common purpose to defend the community of the realm. And meanwhile, the negotiations with a hostile French court and papal legate went on. The English bishops took the terms of the ordinance to France, but really they didn't improve matters. Finally, Louis did break his silence with an impressively outraged comment that he would rather break clods behind the plough than have this sort of kingly rule. Well, look, Louis, that's exactly the kind of attitude that will end up one day on the gallows. You mark my words. Next, the papal legate gathered the English bishops in a room and proceeded to ignore the concept of coming to some kind of negotiated agreement and instead tried to browbeat them into submission. They made small concessions, but on the essentials, they wouldn't budge, whatever the threats of excommunication and interdict. At one point, the incredulous legate tried to make sure they were for real. He asked them point blank, Do you really agree with the barons that the King of England should be compelled to accept specified councillors and strictly follow their counsel? As far as the legate was concerned, the answer to this question was quite clearly going to be no, the bishops would see the errors of the way, and everything would be okay. All his experience of medieval kingship would support that view. But to his exasperation, each of the English bishops looked him in the eye and said, yeah, the king should so be bound. Louis and the legate were infuriated and running out of patience, determined to bring the English to heel through the ultimate medieval sanction. And so a peace treaty of sort was sent back to de Montfort with the bishops 
along with papal bulls of excommunication which were to be read out in the event of rejection and a deadline of 15 days in which to respond. But again, the legate and Louis had misread their man and the mood in England. When the bishops arrived at Dover, the men of Dover took the papal bulls from them. They then contemptuously tore them up and threw them into the sea. Equally dramatically, once de Montford received the peace treaty, he had a knight take his formal letters of rejection in a box. The knight set off to sea, and off the coast of France he dropped the box into the sea. Through this bit of medieval theatre, Louis and the Pope were defied. De Montford, de Clare and their associates were duly excommunicated and their lands placed under interdict. So, I said two sources of military crisis. The other came, surprise, surprise, from the Welsh marches. Here, the key man is Roger Mortimer. His family had been lords in the marches since the conquest and over the centuries his lands in Wales, always substantial, had grown even bigger. From their caput or main castle at Wigmore on the English side of the border, they wielded massive power and influence. And under Mortimer's leadership, all the disaffected lords from Lewis, such as Roger Laybourne and the Cliffords, had all gathered together. In July, while the army was gathering on the downs, de Clare and de Montford marched into Wales and brought the marchers apparently to agreement. But sadly, nothing happened to implement said agreement. Mortimer wasn't ready to openly challenge de Montford, but nor was de Montford strong enough to force obedience. And although the threat from France receded, as Eleanor's money ran out, in October 1264, Mortimer and the marchers were once again in revolt, capturing the royal castles at Gloucester, Bridge North, and very far east, at Marlborough. And at the same time, a daring rescue attempt was made to spring Edward from Wallingford. De Montford moved Edward to his own castle at Kenilworth and ordered the feudal host to assemble. Once again, through a quick, impressive campaign, de Montford forced the marchers to the bargaining table. But still, while he could impose terms, once again he wasn't able to really enforce them. Nonetheless, from December 1264, de Montford seems at the height of his powers, with the marchers apparently subdued. And in January 1265, he held a parliament that sat for the longest of any during the reforming period. In that parliament, for the very first time, both knights and the burgesses of the towns were summoned to attend. You might remember that we made this point in the Economic and Society episodes. The knights and the merchants were now central to successful government and their interests were too divergent for the magnates to represent them. De Montfort is the man to recognise this, driven by his need to generate as much support as possible for his regime, but from now on it's a feature of medieval government. Edward I will be a pretty dominating king, but he'll still work through Parliament, not outside of it. Sadly, though, de Montfort was at the same time not helping his own cause. And however you want to explain it away, and there is a defence of sorts that I'll try to put, it's pride and avarice that weakens his regime. As one chronicler put it, the pride and arrogance of Lucifer. Because now that he's boss, de Montfort is off the leash, and able to set about amassing that personal fortune we keep talking about. And in the process, it will become clear that de Montfort has set himself above the king in power, wealth and influence. He does this in a number of ways, some more obvious than others. But a big one is in the terms of Edward's release. 
This included handing over much of the Palatinate of Chester to de Montfort himself, an enormous increase in de Montfort's power and an emasculation of the appanage that Henry had provided for his son. At least in some degree, this was done in the form of an agreement for which, in return, Edward was supposed to receive back some manors in other parts of England. But, of course, those manners were poxy, two-bit, no good, and, generally speaking, cotton-picking. In many other ways, de Montfort felt no such need to dress things up, and is pretty shamelessly acting outside the law. The Ferrers family, for example. The Earls of Derby. Well, they end up in jail, with their castles confiscated and transferred to de Montfort. A Kentish knight, Robert de Tweet, was deceased because, quote, he was on the king's side at the Battle of Lewis. His exploitation of his position is ruthless and systematic. Worse, this is a family firm thing, and his sons, Henry, Simon, Guy, or Murray, were also on the take, and every bit as bad. Henry, for example, acted as an estita, which is basically a license to take lands off royalists. Guy was given the management of Richard of Cornwall's lands. There was even a suggestion that Simon Senior and his sons encouraged piracy from the sink ports and took a third of the profits. By 1265, de Montfort was wandering around with a massive entourage of 140 household knights, far more than Henry himself. When Henry de Montfort and Simon Jr. went to tournaments in 1265, a chronicler noted that they were abounding in money and with an innumerable company of paid knights. Now I suppose there are a few problems with this, and it's important not to be too modern about it. One possible interpretation is that maybe de Montfort didn't mean any of this rule-by-the-people stuff and that he always had just been out for his own gain and it's all a blind for personal ambition. I think we can disprove that. De Montfort has consistently demonstrated his adherence to the principles of the provisions and pushed parts of their demands in the face of magnate opposition even when it endangered his own position. And also de Montfort never became an autocrat he continued to work with the agreement of a wider parliament and the officers of state and was scrupulous in observing the three parliaments a year rule. But he can also be charged simply with political ineptitude and avarice and they're sadly guilty as charged, my lord. De Montfort essentially allows his court to become as riven by faction as Henry had and proves just as rubbish at distributing patronage evenly. He relies too much on his personal charisma to hold things together because his greatest ally, Gilbert de Clare, had two reasons to be worried, and indeed, irritated. De Montfort's behaviour was high-handed, so for example, de Clare expected to get a ransom from Richard of Cornwall, who he captured at Lewis, but his claim was rather dismissively denied by de Montfort. And secondly, de Clare grew to detest de Montfort's sons, who were constantly picking away at his lands. Put these together, and de Clare's basic worry was that every day de Montfort grew more powerful and he, de Clare, became less powerful. One wonders also what role his wife played in his attitudes, if any. His wife was, after all, a Lusignan, Alice de Lusignan, famed for her beauty and flirtatiousness and her similarity to her grandmother Isabella of Angoulême, wife of John. So it's interesting that Gilbert was supporting an anti-Lusignan faction and you might wonder if Alice tried to change his mind. It's impossible to know, since against that were the rumours of an affair between Prince Edward and Alice in 1264, and the fact that Alice and Gilbert were to separate in 1264 and later divorce. But despite all of this, and the events that fold later, 
For most of England, Simon de Montfort remained a great man, the leader of a great cause. I said it's possible to defend de Montfort's seeming greed and land-grabbing, so let's give it a whirl. De Montfort had seen time after time how the magnates had proved unreliable and inconstant. So, if he had the palatinate of Chester to hand out, why wouldn't he take it himself? Giving it to someone else, in his mind, was beginning to be tantamount to giving it back to the king. It was quite clear in 1265 and 1264 that England was under a direct threat. There was an argument many may have accepted that de Montfort had a right to build his power against that threat. And in fact, most knights in the church, as I say, basically stayed loyal. Yes, there was some defection amongst the knightly class, as de Montfort's regime struggled to maintain law and order, but his support remained surprisingly strong. Unlikely as it seems, this arrogant, high-handed Frenchman was the leader of a common, or at least reasonably common, man. And we should remember that in the medieval world, magnificence and display were to a degree the duty of the great man. A certain amount of nest-feathering was only to be expected, and would have been expected by de Montfort's peers. De Montfort's commitment to the provisions were clear, and in this he maintained his support. And there were other activities which, while a bit disreputable, were seen in an entirely positive light to the medieval mind. This concerned the Jewish community. 1264 had seen a wave of violence against the Jews. Robert de Ferrers had led a massacre at Worcester in March. Gilbert de Clare led a massacre in Canterbury in April and in London. Rioters killed about 500 Jews. In all cases, one of the main motivations was to seize the chests which held the record of debts, and therefore effectively free knights of their financial worries. De Montfort did nothing to help the Jews, and indeed clearly supported the persecution, as we've already seen through his expulsion of the Jews from the Leicester in the 1230s. In fact, he continued to take away the Jews' livelihood, with 60 royal writs absolving knights from paying their debts to Jews. Without doubt unfair, but without doubt also popular. But none of this cut enough ice with the Red Earl. Gilbert de Clare left court in April 1265. And although his brother Thomas de Clare stayed with de Montfort and apparently loyal, de Montfort knew this was trouble, because Gilbert had gone west to the marches of Wales and that was where his enemies lay. In May, de Montfort set off for the West Country to try to repair the breach that he knew threatened his kingdom. Which seems like a good place to stop for this week. Just recently, I have been very pleased to have received some generous donations from five blokes. So my grateful thanks to Arthur, Pascal, Paul, Evan and Seamus. And also my grateful thanks to all of you for your comments on the website, Facebook, iTunes or email. Keep them coming. Good luck and have a great week.